welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This morning we'll continue our look into Paul's instructions to Timothy on caring for those who are truly widows. I spent most of our time last week establishing the foundation for why God gives so much attention to widows. We went back to Genesis 2 and 3 and saw how God created Eve in such a way that she would look to Adam to protect and provide for her. Yes, God was her ultimate protector and provider, but God purposed that Adam, her husband, was to be the primary human element responsible to care for her. Adam was to lead by protecting and providing, and Eve was to follow by helping Adam in bearing children. And they both continued in the state of harmony and peace for a time in the garden, but when they disobeyed God's command, they, plan, they plunged humanity into sin and death. And death brought great <coughs> sorrow to the family unit. A man could now be bereft of his wife, his helper, the one designed by God to complete him. A woman could now be bereft of her husband, her protector and provider, the one designed by God to shield and comfort her. But as the weaker vessel, the bereft woman was by far the more vulnerable to mistreatment and abandonment. And for this reason, God divinely intervenes and pleads the widow's cause. Throughout the Old Testament, God describes himself as the champion of those who are cast down and oppressed. And all who fear him, who fear God, all who love him as Yahweh, the creator God, they will follow his example by showing compassion to those most vulnerable in society. The New Testament also affirms that God's heart for the most vulnerable in society has not changed. In fact, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, summarizes outward acts of religion this way. In James 1.27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction does not merely mean to sit down with them wherever they might be. Instead, to visit them is to meet them, to attend to them, to see them in their need and meet their need. This is why the church in Ephesus was attending to the needs of the widows in their congregation, but unfortunately some in the congregation were taking advantage of the church's compassion. This leads Paul to write 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1-16 through 16, as a correction of misplaced priorities and, a, and as a reminder of the heart of God for widows. With this in mind, let's read verses 1-8 through 8 together for context. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as, as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, 
in all purity. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly (coughs) widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This morning we'll begin in verse 5, saying, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command and teach these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His help this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank You for each one here this morning. I thank You for this this little family who is striving to live for You and evidence um, our love for You to a lost and dying world. I pray that You will take Your words, that the Holy Spirit of God which show us how we can do this better, not so that we can be seen as righteous people and get a pat on the back or just be seen as holy people in our communities, but so that you would be glorified and so that everyone that belongs to you in this city would come to you for your glory, for our joy, and so that your kingdom might be built. In Jesus' name, amen. As we saw last week, Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 by reminding Timothy that the church is a family with fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. Then in verse 3, Paul gives his thesis statement for verses 3 through 16. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. The Greek word translated honor means to behold and value highly. To honor someone is to set a high price on their well-being You are in fact saying, they are worthy of my personal sacrifice. We are to behold the need of the bereft ones, widows, and value them highly, despite the fact that the world has often kicked them to the curb. But because some in the church would take advantage of the church's compassion and generosity, Paul adds the phrase at the end, He says that the church was to honor widows who are truly widows. By this he means that the church is to protect and provide for the alone ones who are truly alone. Verses 4 through 6 will define Paul's definition of truly alone. In verse 4 we saw that God declares it good and pleasing in his sight that children and grandchildren first learn to show godliness to their parents and grandparents in their time of need. It is ungodly and wicked then, in God's sight, to bring your destitute parents and leave them on the doorstep of the church when it was within your ability to provide for their needs. So for a woman to be truly a widow or truly alone, she must be without children or family that can provide for her or her unbelieving family are unwilling to provide for her. Paul goes on in verse 5 to further describe the widow that the church is responsible to provide and protect. He says in verse 5, 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So we first saw that a widow must be truly alone, but second, verse 5 says she must be a genuine believer. Our church is not responsible for every widow in the city of George. Our limited resources can only shelter so many, and Paul points to the bereft women in our own family of faith, our local church, as the ones we are first and foremost responsible for. These widows in our church who are genuine believers, they do not run from God in their distress. Instead, this tragedy in their life draws them closer to their God. I'm not saying there is no struggle or pain or weeping or questions that come into the believer's mind and heart during tragedy. But genuine believers turn to God in their distress. This is one of the evidences of a heart that has been made alive unto God. In verse 5, we see that this believing widow has set her hope on God. The implication being that there is no other human redeemer for her to place her hope in. This is not primarily referring to hope for eternal life because placing your hope in a human redeemer would be pointless for anyone. But instead, this woman has fixed her hope on God for her daily needs, for provision and protection. Yes, every Christian is hopefully calling on God in supplication and prayer for their daily bread. And it is good and right to acknowledge God as the giver of every good gift, which includes our clothing, food, and shelter. But think with me for a moment of a married Christian woman. She may wake up in the morning and while doing her devotions, pray that God would protect her family and provide their daily bread. But she does all this with the underlying expectation that her Christian husband is also going to wake up and go to work. There would be and should be serious problems in the home if a Christian husband wakes up and says, you know, I've kind of gotten tired of this whole protecting and providing thing. I think today, and maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, I'm just going to stay in bed. The Christian wife is absolutely right for being appalled by that sentiment. The hypocrisy of claiming to be a Christian man, yet rejecting your responsibility, should offend us. It is good and right for a Christian woman to hope and trust that her Christian husband will make every effort to protect and provide for their family. After all, God is the one who gave her the husband in the first place and then created him to be able to do that very task. But the Christian widow who is truly alone has no human provider And she must turn to God and plead for His mercy and sustainment in a unique way. Because she vividly, daily realizes there is no other Redeemer coming. When my wife wakes up in the middle of the night to a loud crashing sound somewhere in the house, 
her first and foremost, or her first and natural, natural response is to look at me and say in a very obvious way, what was that? And if she is especially concerned, I might receive a very helpful nudge out of bed to get going. Hopefully my wife then sends up a prayer to God for our protection as I stumble down the stairs half awake to face whatever creature is making all the commotion. This is good and right. Because I am God's representative here on earth responsible for her protection and provision. But the Christian widow who is truly alone Her response to fear, poverty, hunger, destitution looks different. Her first and natural response most often will be to look directly to her heavenly Father and cry out to Him night and day. This does not mean that she does nothing but pray. But she is constantly in prayer because God is her only hope her only companion in the struggles of life. This woman is truly a widow, one that the church is responsible before God to protect and provide for. Paul goes on in verse 6 to describe the opposite of this virtuous woman who is bereft. He says in verse 6, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Paul is describing a different kind of widow. This widow has all her needs provided for. Maybe she has family that are generous, or maybe she was left great wealth by her deceased husband. Instead of mourning the death of her husband and turning to God in her bereft condition, instead of this, she sees the death of her husband as a liberating experience. She is now free to live as her heart desires. During the first century, there was a movement sweeping through the Roman Empire of what became known as the New Woman or the New Roman Woman. These new women were throwing off cultural norms of faithfulness to their own husbands and were rejecting the role of wife and mother in the home. Clothing became a big part of their identity. This is very likely why Paul mentions braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire in chapter 2. This could also explain why Paul encourages head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11 for married women in the church assembly. Because the new women were known to remove their veil, or remove the veil that symbolized their belonging and submission to their own husbands. This would be similar to a married woman today removing her wedding ring in anticipation for a girl's night out. These new women looked down on the married life and aspired to greater things. A husband and children were only dead weight that would slow them down in their political or monetary endeavors. The ideas of the new women were bleeding into the church, and this is the setting that Paul writes to. But this setting in the first century is not all that different from our setting today. I suppose the main difference is that there is a 
far greater attack in our day on the family unit and God-ordained purposes for men and women. This is what Paul is pointing to in verse 6. He says that the new women of the Roman Empire were self-indulgent. Their only care was self. Freedom and individualism were more important than family. Luxury and comfort more to be desired than godly service. Power and wealth a better hope than God. And this cancer had spread into the hearts and minds of some of the women in the Ephesian church. It is even possible that some widows who were living in, in the new woman lifestyle with more than their, their needs met, some of these women were still coming to the church asking for financial support in order to fund the self-indulgence. The Greek word translated self-indulgence or pleasure is only used one other time in the New Testament in James 5.5. In this passage, James is rebuking those he calls the rich, a term describing wealthy landowners and merchants who cared for nothing other than their own profits and pleasure. James lists the things that they were living for. He says riches, garments, treasure, or tre- yeah, treasure, luxury, and this word, self-indulgence. They lived without a care for the needs of others or the glory of God. Paul also describes this way of living in Philippians 3, warning the church to beware of those he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. He says that their end is destruction. Their God is their bellies. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The opposite of the godly widow who has set or fixed her hope on God. They have set their minds and hope on earthly things. Paul's point in 1 Timothy 5 verse 6 is that widows who respond to the death of their husband in this way as a new Roman woman, using her freedom and wealth to multiply her earthly pleasures, this woman is dead even while she lives. She is spiritually dead, though she has physical life for the moment. The church has the responsibility to be careful to reserve the limited resources it has for those who are truly widows, left all alone with their hope set on God. In verse 7, Paul says, Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. When Paul says, so that they may be without reproach, I believe he is referring both to the Christian relatives of widows and widows themselves. His teaching in the previous verses addresses godliness in the lives of both relatives and widows, and his desire is that both sides of the equation would put on display the beauty of being part of God's family. But if we make all these grand claims about being children of the King and part of the family of God, and then live just like the rest of the world, then we bring shame on ourselves and on the name of Christ. In his teaching, Paul reveals his concern for three things. He's concerned about the personal holiness of believers. He's concerned about the church's witness to a lost world. 
And ultimately, he's concerned about the glory of God. And he points to the fact that if someone claims to be walking in the light, but lives in darkness, he shames himself, and the Lord he claims. In verse 8, Paul's warning becomes even more severe. He says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his, ho- his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The wording of the sentence is left intentionally broad and reminds men and women of their responsibility to provide for those under their care. But in the Greek, but the Greek word translated anyone often carries with it the implied meaning of any man. So I believe the primary call to provide in this verse goes to the heads of households, the men who are responsible to provide for their families, as we see later on in this verse. But who are men responsible to provide for? Paul first answers with a more general term. He says his relatives, or more literally, those uniquely his own. These family members do not necessarily live under the man's roof, as we'll see next. But when a mother, father, sister, or brother is on the brink of becoming destitute without food, clothing, or shelter, then it is the responsibility of family members to come to one another's aid. This does not mean that you have to pay your brother's 20,000 rand apartment rental bill. Or that you have to pay off your sister's credit card bills because she went to the mall and went a little bit wild. That's not what this is talking about. But it does mean that we would be ashamed to let our mother spend a night sleeping on the street. Or to find out that my father went hungry last night because he couldn't afford a can of beans. In Paul's day, even distant family members typically live in the same communities that they grew up in. Imagine the shame that would be brought on a family if they allowed their widowed aunt to become homeless and to end up a beggar in their own town. Even Jews and Greeks saw this as shameful. Imagine the hypocrisy of some of the Ephesian believers They were heading to the assembly. Imagine they were heading to an assembly or a service on a Sunday morning, all decked out in their fancy hairdos, accented with gold and pearls, as we learned earlier in 1 Timothy. While everyone in the town knows that their auntie Rebecca has been a beggar ever since her husband died and his creditors kicked her out of their house. Not only was the shameful bring a reproach on the name of Christ. It also brought into question whether or not the heartless family members had truly experienced the new birth. Whether or not they had the Spirit of God truly inside them, leading and guiding them. Paul uses this language to remind the Ephesian believers of their responsibility to relatives within their sphere of influence. But in the next part of verse 8, Paul narrows in on a man's primary responsibility to provide. He says men are especially responsible for members of their own household. We have seen this word household before. It literally means 
those that belong under one roof. Previously, Paul spoke of relatives or other family, but now he speaks specifically of those living under a man's roof. A man is especially responsible for members of his own household. Now you may be thinking to yourself, isn't this all a bit basic? Is it really necessary to emphasize a man's responsibility to provide for his own wife, children, father, or mother? Well, in Paul's day, there were men that were bringing their aging parents to church, leaving them on the doorstep and expecting the church to pay their bills. There were men divorcing their wives for unbiblical reasons and kicking them to the curb. Men wasting their days at the inn, drinking themselves poor, and then spending the rest of their time hungover. Men who sleep with women outside of marriage because they wanted their, to satisfy their passions, but they did not want to burden themselves with a wife. Men who spent their time looking for quick and easy money, but who resented honest work. Men who would carry their newborn baby daughter to a hillside and leave her there to die because she was an inconvenience he did not want to support. This was common in Paul's day. This is the culture Paul is writing to, and he is calling the family of God to reject their culture and cling to that which is pleasing in the sight of God. And as we saw before, Paul could have been writing directly to us in our culture. Every single failing of men that I listed before could honestly be applied to our culture today. And Paul would have us reject every aspect of our culture that rages against God and despises His wisdom. Caring for aging parents is our privilege. Marriage is sacred and is to be cherished, defended, and fought for. We are to be filled and controlled by the Spirit of God and not rendered useless or worse by drugs. Sexual passion is not our personal plaything. Instead, it is a gift from God to be enjoyed as an essential building block of a godly marriage within marriage alone. Babies are not inconveniences to be aborted abandoned, or shipped off. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And finally, get rich quick schemes are not the answer for fulfillment. In reality, working an honest job for a fair return is a gift from the Lord. Young men, fix your heart on working long and hard for a fair return. Not so that you can one day buy that brand new Mercedes, but instead so that through you, God could pour out provision on a wife and children. 
parents and relatives in need, and on the household of God. Not so that you can get a pat on the back and be able to walk around with your head held high in your society, but because that is what God designed you to do for His glory, for the good of His people. Take up this task and rejoice in the task that God has designed you for and called you to. Do not work for the weekend. Work so that God would be glorified and your family provided for through your daily labor. Men who reject this calling to provide for his own household and those relatives in desperate need, these men have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever, as Paul says in the end of verse 8. To deny means that he has disowned or repudiated the faith through his actions or lack of action. To idly stand by as your family members become destitute is to declare that you do not love God or love his people. In fact, if a so-called Christian does not even provide for his own family, he is actually worse than most unbelievers and pagans, because even they typically do these things. God cares deeply about how we steward our time, energy, and money. These things reveal the condition of our heart toward God and other people. Our stewardship will either bring glory to God and declare to all peoples that our God is great. He is worthy of all honor, devotion, and love. There is no price to pay that is too high or no sacrifice too great to give in order to gain this God. Or our stewardship will declare to all peoples that our God is just okay. But what is really amazing is my comfort and stuff and personal freedom and independence. As the redeemed of the Lord, a peculiar people called out from the world and unto God, may we put on public display the infinite beauty and worth of our great God to a lost and dying world through the way we live as the family of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for your word. How it convicts, encourages, heals, and even wounds, where wounds need to be made so that we can then grow and be changed. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with these words that we would not see this just as another law that burdens us or drags us down in life, but instead that we would see the joy, that we would know the joy of loving you, loving people, and living as children of the King that get to reflect your beauty, your goodness. I pray that you would accomplish this in us and that you would bless us as we go out this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.